Hi there. A note before we start, as some news broke just before we put this episode out, there has been confirmation that Ireland will be prioritising the use of mRNA vaccines, so that's the Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna ones, over AstraZeneca's for older people. You'll hear later in this episode the reasons behind this decision relate to efficacy rather than safety. Just to stress, it is a safe vaccine and has been recommended and approved for all age groups by the European Medicines Agency. In Ireland, this doesn't appear to be a blanket ban on the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine in over 65s, as is the case in other European countries. We have said that doses should still go to older people rather than younger people first. But of course, this is all subject to change as we learn more about the efficacy of this particular vaccine in older people as it's being distributed in other countries at a larger rate. So that's one thing to bear in mind when listening to this week's episode. And you can also find out more details as we publish them on the journal.ie. Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, there's been a hell of a lot happening with the AstraZeneca vaccine. So let's take a deep dive. Do you know what this pandemic did not need? Vaccine production problems. Do you know what else it didn't need? Contract disputes arising from said production disputes. And another thing it really, 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 really didn't need? A great big dollop of Brexit. So what did we get? All three together, obviously, like a good Irish bus schedule. We went from a contracts row between AstraZeneca and the European Commission bubbling over on Wednesday to being on the precipice of a Brexit-shaped diplomatic crisis on Friday night. And this is all without mentioning how there were doubts about whether the European Medicines Agency would even give a green light to AstraZeneca's vaccine to be given to adults of all ages. So there's a lot to unpack there, obviously. Our reporters Ian Curran and Michelle Hennessy spent all of the past week doing just that. They wrote about it extensively together last week, and we'll link to that piece on the journal in the episode details. But they also join us today to talk us through this ungodly mess. Hey, guys. Hi, Sinead. Hi, Sinead. Michelle, as always, let's start with the basics. The AstraZeneca vaccine is seen as a game changer for rollout speeds. Why is that? Can you tell us a little bit about the vaccine? Yeah, so it's probably easier to start with what it's not. Um, We've been hearing a lot in recent months about messenger RNA vaccines, so that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, that's the other two approved by the European Medicines Agency so far, those are messenger RNA vaccines. The Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine is not a messenger RNA jab. So instead, it's made from a weakened version of a common cold virus from chimpanzees, and it's been modified to look more like SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19. Now, the vaccine doesn't give you COVID and it also doesn't give you the chimpanzee cold, it's important to say. The virus has been genetically modified so that it's impossible for it to grow in humans. As you said, it's been labelled a game changer in the rollout. The main reason is that it doesn't require those ultra cold temperatures that the mRNA vaccines need. So it can be stored in a normal fridge in the same way as the flu vaccine is stored and administered in GP surgeries and pharmacies across the country every year. Uh, It means a less costly and less complicated storage and transportation process. And I mean, this all means that it opens up possibilities in terms of vaccine administration locations. It's still a two dose vaccine, but this is really better for mass vaccination centers. It's a a, a better one for GP surgeries, for pharmacies. Um, It can really be used in a lot of settings without those additional considerations that you have with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. So... We have seen it as a game changer, like we've been saying in Ireland. What role is it due to play in our own strategy here? 
I mean, it's a big part of our strategy. Like I said there, um, we are looking to to move into a bigger rollout over the coming months. I mean, initially, our priority was to get as many uh, frontline healthcare workers vaccinated as possible uh, and also to um, move into nursing homes, other residential care facilities and uh, basically the, the, the older cohorts in um, those facilities uh, were being given the vaccine first. The, the next stage is to move on outside of those settings into the wider community and people in the older age cohort. So we'll see, uh, first of all, people aged over the age of 85, and then it'll move down uh, basically all of the people aged 70 and over in that next group, starting with the oldest. And this vaccine was going to be a big part of that. Once we move into communities, we're really depending uh, on, on GPs in particular and on those mass vaccination centres that we've been hearing about for the last number of months. And this was the best vaccine or is the best vaccine that we have so far that's been approved to use in those settings. So, you know, it is and always has been, um, that's what we've been hearing from the government, a, a big part of the plans that they had. Yeah, because I think most people probably will have come across that video of um, from Britain explaining that you can't even walk up a stairs with the Pfizer vaccine. But this AstraZeneca one, it can be just in your normal fridge like the pharmacies have, like the GPs have. So, you know, people can go to it and, and get it much easier, which is what's happening in the UK, right? That, that their rollout started and they're using AstraZeneca. Yeah, they are. And, and that vaccine was approved by the UK's regulatory body on the 30th of December. Hospitals administered the first doses to older patients in early January, so they have the same sort of priority list that we have. Now, with the Oxford connection, um, the UK government has obviously been keen to start using this one quickly and on a large scale. But like I said earlier, it is a game changer for everyone. So I think that Oxford connection um, is maybe a bit overplayed sometimes. I mean, it is a vaccine that's been shown in trials to be effective and safe. It's also, as I said, easier to transport and store. But I suppose that the key here for Britain in terms of how far ahead it has been um, is that it's no longer part of the EU. I mean, the the government isn't waiting for the European Medicines Agency to analyse the data uh, and for conditional marketing authorization to be given to companies. Its own medicines and healthcare products regulatory authority, that's the equivalent of our HPRA, has been doing that work itself independently, assessing the data from trials and then granting approval for supply. Now, there is a difference between the types of, of approval the EU and the UK are given. In the UK, it's a temporary regulatory approval. So that's used in emergency situations to address a significant public health event like a pandemic. Uh, and our regula- regulatory authority, the HPRA, has pointed out that this essentially allows an unlicensed product to be used on a temporary basis. The EMA's process, that's the conditional marketing authorization process, Uh, we'll call it CMA from now on just uh, because it's a bit of a mouthful, Um, that requires a higher level of evidence and checks. And there are also tighter regulatory manufacturing and batch controls attached to that. And what the HPRA describes as a controlled and robust framework. But it it is clear that a high level of data was provided to the UK regulator before approval. And the vaccine has been approved by the EMA now anyway. So I think that This is where hindsight kicks in a bit and people start asking questions about whether the EU process is really better when the differences on the surface level, at least, don't seem very significant to people. Uh, And the end result has obviously been the same. It has still been approved by the EMA. 
And I don't think it can be overlooked either that the EU was so far behind in signing uh, its contracts, its advanced purchase agreement with AstraZeneca. The UK signed its formal agreement with the firm in May last year, and it wasn't until three months later that the EU signed its APA. Now, by that time, the company had, uh, by the time the company had applied to the EMA for conditional authorization, that was on the 12th of January, it was already approved by the UK regulator and it was filling orders. People were being vaccinated with that vaccine in the UK by the time it applied for approval to the EMA. So could the regulatory process not start until that APA was signed? I mean, there are parts of it basically that were ongoing. Um, One of the ways that the EMA sped up the process, if you want to put it that way, uh, is that instead of waiting until there had been an application put in by any of the companies, um, they were doing a rolling review of the data. So uh, in normal times, uh, if you remember normal times, they would have waited until uh, all all of the trials were done and there was a big bulk of data that would have then been um, sent to them and they would have looked at it all together. Uh, The way they did it now was as the data was becoming available from the various trials from the various companies, they were looking at it on a rolling basis, on a continuous basis, so that when uh, an application was was sent into them. It was a matter of of two or three weeks that that they were able, I mean, most of the work, the bulk of the work was really done by that stage. Ian, can I bring you in there on the business side of things? Can you just explain what an APA, an advanced purchase agreement is, and in this context, what it allows the signees and the companies to do? Sure. I I mean, an advanced purchase agreement is kind of exactly what it says in the tin. In in this uh, example, what it allowed uh, the European Commission to do was to coordinate supply efforts on behalf of the whole of the EU 27. So just a bit of context is needed there. It was agreed during the summer that the Commission would do that, that they would coordinate supply efforts, negotiate on behalf of the EU 27 with the individual pharmaceutical companies. And what an APA basically allows them to do is to purchase a certain amount of the vaccine in advance of its actual production in advance, in this case, of its actual approval by the EMA, as Michelle has talked about there. Uh, And so the content of the agreements, um, including in relation to sort of liability and indemnity, they're negotiated with the vaccine suppliers by the European Commission and its negotiating team on behalf of the member states. And then the member states are, uh, in the case of the AstraZeneca um, contract in particular, you know, they're then able to purchase uh, some 300 million doses of the vaccine uh, as uh, as was agreed as part of the APA. Last week, when we, the AstraZeneca contract was actually published, we found out a little bit about how that was structured in the sense that we found out that 336 million was essentially what uh, the EU Commission agreed to pay up front. That's before any doses of the vaccine have been actually approved by the EMA. Uh, Two thirds of that sum was due within five days after the signing of the contract. So in a nutshell, basically, it's an agreement to purchase a certain amount of the vaccine before its actual production, before its approval by the EMA. Is there any clear reason why the EU was three months behind the UK in signing the APA with AstraZeneca? Uh, there's no clear reason. I think that's kind of the theme running through all of this. There, there, there are no clear reasons quite yet uh, for um, the delays uh, and, and particularly the delays around the, the deal that they struck with AstraZeneca, which was signed in August. It, depending on who you ask, there may have been some haggling over price. Um, that's a narrative, obviously, that suits the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, it's also a narrative that suits kind of 
anti-EU Brexit types in Britain, that EU bureaucracy and sort of haggling over the price. But but there might be something to that in the sense that this isn't something that the EU does very often on this scale or that the European Commission does. Um, So there's no clear reason exactly, but I'm sure it'll all come out in the wash. Yeah, one of the other things that there was some confusion about as well, Michelle, was whether uh, the vaccine was as effective for every group of adults. Can you tell us a little bit about that confusion, where it arose from and how we eventually ended up with an approval? Yeah, so I suppose the data around this one has been a a bit tricky. Um, And I think if people were were trying to follow what was coming out of the trials, they might have found it a bit confusing. Like I said before, this is designed to be a two-dose vaccine. But some volunteers in the trials initially received a half dose as their first dose in error. Now, the developers attributed this to a change in the manufacturing process. I mean, they haven't really been very clear on how exactly it happened. But when the mistake was uncovered... In consultation with the regulators, they decided to administer that accidental procedure, that's a half dose, um, followed by four weeks later, a full dose, to less than 3,000 of the subjects as part of the larger phase three trials. Now, this dosage appeared to result in higher efficacy, around 90% than the two full dose regime. There were almost 9,000 participants who were given two full doses, also four weeks apart. And the efficacy from that was 62% versus 90%. I mean, it seems a bit wild. Um, people who, who wouldn't be familiar with the, the way a, a vaccine can work, it can seem a bit wild that a smaller amount could actually work better. One of the theories is that that first lower dose may lead to a faster development of the memory cells. And those are the cells that will notice and point out the virus if they see it again, basically. Uh, and they are then triggered by the second dose, potentially making it more effective. I'm using a lot of words like may and potentially here because there really isn't strong enough data. We're talking about less than 3000 people in that trial. And the regulators have recommended using the two full doses rather than the half and then the full dose. Um, the, the UK is extending the time period between those doses so it can give a higher number of people that first dose early on. And th- there's nothing to suggest that there was any impact on safety with that error, just in case that's a worry for people. And obviously, we know it has been used for a number of weeks now in the UK without any reports of serious adverse incidents. You preempted my next question there about why they aren't doing the half then the full dose if it was better. But obviously, the group was too small, so they can't actually approve the vaccine given in that way because only 3000 people received it in that way in the trial. Yeah, that's right. And I I think... um I mean, there was speculation about whether it was taking a a little bit longer for the process with the European Medicines Agency because they were waiting for a bit more data to come out of the trials, both in in relation to this uh, error with the the half dose and also waiting for further information on on the older group. So, I, I mean, I remember before the application was even put in, there were a lot of commentators saying, you know, the AMA has been asking for more data from AstraZeneca uh, uh, and there was you know there wasn't absolute certainty that it would be approved because of that. Yeah there was a lot of speculation in the last couple of weeks about what the EMA would do for that cohort of over 65s when it came to this vaccine from AstraZeneca. What were the reasons for those question marks? What was the reason for the speculation? Yeah and I mean this 
this was a, a kind of a separate issue um, from from the supply issue. And it all happened in the same week and all got tied in together uh, in this one big mess. It initially started with, with reports from Germany, um, one from a, a daily economic newspaper called Handelsblatt, which reported it was estimated the efficacy of the jab was just 8% among over, over 65s, which is very alarming. Um, separately, another publication, Build, uh, quoted again anonymous sources saying German authorities were not likely to approve the vaccine for older age co- cohorts and it quoted an efficacy rate of less than 10%, so similar to the 8% in older people. Now, both the company and uh, the German health ministry rejected that 8% efficacy figure. What they said is that around 8% of volunteers in efficacy studies were aged 56 to 69 and 3 to 4% were above the age of 70. That's just the number of people involved. That's not an indication of efficacy in those groups. But Build, uh, that publication was right about the German authorities not approving the vaccine for over 65s. So we heard last week the German Vaccine Commission said there was insufficient evidence on uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine effectiveness in older people. And so it was only recommending it for uh, use in those aged 18 to 65. The following day, the European Medicines Agency gave the green light to that vaccine, stating it is recommended for use in all age groups. Uh, so that's uh, over, over the age of 18, including people over the age of 65. The statement from the EMA did make note of the fact that most of the participants in these vaccine studies were between the age of 18 and 55. Uh, and it, it said that there aren't enough results to provide a figure for how well the vaccine will work in those age over 55. But it did say protection is expected, given that an immune response is seen in this age group uh, and based on experience with other vaccines, as there is reliable information on safety in this population, the EMA scientific experts consider the vaccine can be used in older adults. I mean, like I said before, we have seen that it's been used quite successfully in the UK. If people are concerned about safety, that's a completely separate issue to efficacy. Uh, efficacy is something that we're going to have to wait a while you know, with all vaccines, and this is something actually that our health officials have said here, that while concern about that is understandable, we don't actually know how effective any of the vaccines that we're using are going to be in the long term, um, which I know isn't a comforting comment to make, but, but I suppose it's just to, to give a bit of context about the discussion that, that's being had around this. Yeah, and we are seeing data coming out of places like Israel and the UK who are ahead of us on the uh, on the rollout front. So there is positive news coming out of those countries as well. Yeah, that's right. So with the Pfizer vaccine, there's really positive and also very detailed data coming from Israel. Uh, part of their deal to get a, a much bigger supply and also to get it so early was that they would provide this very detailed data as a kind of a live trial. So showing how it's working in the real world. And that's been really valuable in showing, particularly if you follow that regular two dose schedule, that it is very effective. And then we're also seeing some really encouraging data for AstraZeneca. Uh, that vaccine suggesting that a single dose may reduce transmission by two thirds. And this recent study backs up the UK decision to delay that second jab until 12 weeks later. That's allowing them to get a higher proportion of the population one vaccine dose early on in the rollout. Now, despite this positive data coming from AstraZeneca and also despite the recent EMA recommendation, a number of other countries are following Germany's lead. 
uh, and are not going to use this particular vaccine for those aged over 65. Belgium is only going to use it in under 55s. Authorities in Poland are only recommending it for those aged under 60. And then France, Austria and Sweden will only be using it up to the age of 64. Ian, Michelle mentioned earlier that all of this was happening around the same time. The reports around efficacy, the approval by the EMA of the AstraZeneca vaccine and the problems that the company was having with supply and delivery around to the EU countries. So I'm going to turn to you on that side of things. When was trouble first flagged and what was the EU's reaction to it? Sure. Um, I mean, really, it's just for context, it has just been a really remarkable 10 days or so in in Europe. Um, We found out kind of late on a Friday evening that AstraZeneca had informed EU officials in private of a a 60% cut in its first quarter supply of vaccines to the block. So having been expected to deliver about 80 to 100 million uh, doses by the end of March, now they're saying they're only going to deliver about 30 or 40 million. So publicly, the company said the problem was because of reduced yields at a manufacturing site within our European supply chain. Privately, they told European officials that it related to production issues, specifically at a Belgian manufacturing facility run by its partner, Novacep. So you asked about the reaction. Immediately, the reaction was a a deep dissatisfaction. And in fact, that's exactly what European Health Commissioner uh, Stella Kyriakides said at the time. And then really, because it happened so late on a Friday night, I think people were sort of in shock. But over the weekend, the rhetoric really ramped up. We had a German MEP from Merkel's party saying that the justification, i.e., the kind of Belgian excuse uh, was flimsy and that it didn't hold water. Uh, Charles Michel, the president of the EU Council, said the bloc can turn to all the legal options at our disposal to ensure that there's no backsliding on contractual commitments. And then on Monday, uh, the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, held a phone call with AstraZeneca's chief executive. According to a spokesperson for von der Leyen, uh, she said she makes it she made it clear that she expects AstraZeneca to deliver to deliver the contractual arrangements foreseen in the advanced purchasing agreement. And then on Monday evening, all of a sudden we get this kind of, again, another ramping up of the rhetoric. The question starts to get asked about whether vaccines are leaking from the EU kind of ecosystem into other countries, uh, i.e. specifically the UK. This was raised specifically by the EU health commissioner who said that she wants uh, she and the block wants to know exactly which doses have been produced, where, uh, where by AstraZeneca so far, and if or to whom they have been delivered. Um, so all of a sudden, this question of exports gets raised. And now there is a question of whether restrictions are going to be placed on exports and whether pharmaceutical companies are going to have to notify the EU before they send vaccines that have been produced at EU sites to outside of the EU. So early on, you're starting to get this kind of ramping up of, of rhetoric. Yeah, so AstraZeneca said that the reduced yield was happening in the the Belgian plant. Do we have more from them about how that happened and why that's impacting the EU supply rather than the UK supply? My understanding of it is that is that later on in the week, as in last week, there was a, a an inspection of the plant by Belgian officials. Now we don't exactly know what that has turned up, but. All through the week, AstraZeneca held fast to this issue that 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 it was sort of just a manufacturing issue, glitches in its manufacturing system within Europe. But but then on Tuesday morning, last Tuesday morning, we got more of a response, more of an idea when AstraZeneca's chief executive, uh, Pascal Sorio, gave an interview to La Repubblica. In relation to sort of contractual obligations and the backsliding or whether they were backsliding, what he said was, I can only tell you what's in their contract and the contract is very clear. Our commitment is, and I quote, our best effort. 
So this phrase, best effort, starts to enter the discussion all of a sudden. I'm sure we'll return to that because it gets a bit thorny there. But he, he, he firmly denied that the country, the company was selling vaccines to other parties, other countries from whom it could kind of extract more profit. Uh, and he also kind of stuck the knife into the EU a bit. He said that the EU wanted its vaccines delivered at the same time as the UK, despite the fact that the bloc inked its deal three months after Britain did, as we mentioned before. And crucially as well, he rebutted the Commission's claims that the Belgian excuse just wasn't good enough because the company could simply use production facilities in other countries, in other words, the UK. He he said in the EU agreement, it's mentioned that the manufacturing sites in the UK were an option for Europe, but only later. Um, So this really sets the stage then for quite a tense week and the rhetoric only gets more heated and the situation only gets more kind of confused. And over the course of the week, we start to... uh, find out that the EU will unveil these kind of new trans, what they're calling transparency mechanisms. So companies will have to tell officials how many COVID-19 vaccines are actually leaving the EU for third countries. Yeah. And a lot of this fell onto, like I said in the introduction, it becomes a contract dispute. Um, So we were talking in news team meetings a lot during the week and you kept saying as our business reporter, we don't know until we see the contract. We don't know until we see the contract. We eventually did see the contract. So what did that tell us? Did it did it clear any of this up for us? Yeah, in, in short, I mean, the, the, the answer is is no. Um, it, it cleared up some things, but I mean, just to give you a bit of context, I mean, we were all there. Friday was kind of D-Day. We were expecting these new export rules to be unveiled, but we're also expecting the AstraZeneca vaccine to be approved. And then at midday, the EU and AstraZeneca just decide to publish the contract uh, that was signed last August. So as I said, you know, it's a big grey area, the contract, and I'm not a legal expert, so rather than go through the kind of ins and outs of it, I'll just say what it, what it seems to be. It seems that there's no clear winner in the contract, which, by the way, was heavily redacted. Now, who redacted it remains a kind of debate. The EU officials are sort of briefing people and saying that it was actually the company that wanted 95% of the redactions in the contract. But anyway, that, that that's kind of background information. But I think the best you could say is that the contract, it it does seem to lend credibility to the EU's argument that the company's obligations to Britain shouldn't affect its deal with the EU. But on the other hand, it seems that there's kind of enough grayness about the meaning of the term best effort and whether it applies to the initial doses of the the vaccine uh, or or all of the doses of the vaccine. And there also seems to be some debate about uh, whether AstraZeneca was required to manufacture the EU doses before it had been approved for use. So these quite fundamental questions are still kind of up in the air. Again, I think the best you could say is that there's enough of a grey area for them to go to court. I, I, I think it, it sounds like there is grounds for, for, for a legal debate about this. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really change the fact that as a result of all of this, the EU rollout has kind of slowed to a halt uh, especially in countries like Spain and Italy, which you know were the worst affected at the start of the crisis, um, we're starting to see uh, national efforts kind of grind to a halt. So that's regardless of the legal uh, argument on who wins it. Yeah. So we don't if we don't know if the if the company is contractually obliged to deliver the the promised millions of doses, then. Then you have a situation where we landed at the end of last week, where Europe is looking at ways to keep the doses that they are making in Europe within the EU. And that's where we get the great big dollop of Brexit <laughs> that I spoke about um, when the EU decided to invoke Article 16. Can you explain what that would have meant um, and what the thinking behind what the possible thinking behind invoking that article could have been? We, we don't have a huge amount of information about the process that kind of led to this decision. But just again, to step back for a second, the 
all of last week, uh, EU officials are coming out and they're talking about transparency, transparency mechanisms, export restrictions. And basically what this means is, as I said, uh, an option to maybe require pharmaceutical companies to inform EU officials of any vaccines produced within the bloc that are going to leave for a third country. So on Friday on, at about 5.30 in the evening, reports start to emerge about what these restrictions will include. And reports emerge that one of the things that's going to be included in it uh, is a triggering of Article 16 of the Irish Protocol, which is contained within the Brexit withdrawal agreement. Basically, in a nutshell, the withdrawal agreement, the protocol guarantees a frictionless border between North and South uh, for the purposes of trade after Brexit. Effectively, it gives a special status to the North within the UK because it means it still operates within the EU customs territory and the single market, despite the fact that Britain is now a third country from the EU for the purposes of trade. So it's designed to stop any sort of friction along the Irish border. Uh, and, and Article 16 then within that protocol is basically a last resort mechanism. It means that one side can unilaterally take safeguard measures if there are, quote, serious economic or political threats caused by the implementation of the protocol. Uh, and what it basically allows is for one side to trigger it, effectively suspending it, and the other side is then entitled to kind of respond with appropriate rebalancing measures. So all of a sudden on Friday night, there are reports coming out of Brussels that as part of these new export controls and vaccines, th this article is going to be triggered. Uh, and as I say, it, it was quite late on a Friday evening. Uh, and, and, and this is kind of incendiary stuff, as you can imagine. And so the political response was, was pretty immediate. Yeah, when Article 16 was first explained, the idea was always that it would be the UK that would invoke it and it would be a massive problem for Ireland. So... When Europe obviously became very aware of the Irish response and the British response, how quickly did they backtrack on it? Yeah, I mean, it was within a matter of hours. I mean, I think it was at about 5.30 um, when the, the reports first emerged. Um, immediately, uh, the First Minister of Northern Ireland, Arlene Foster, said that the uh, move was an incredible act of hostility. Simon Coveney eventually said that the, the, the triggering, the, the invocation of Article 16 just came out of the blue. Uh, Michelle O'Neill said it was a totally ill-judged move by the EU and within hours the EU had climbed down. And I think that that's the important thing. It's that the Article 16 issue was resolved quite quickly. Obviously the process bears some uh, scrutiny and there are still a huge amount of questions about how exactly that found its way in to this transparency mechanism and the overall uh, uh, export control regime that uh, the EU wanted to bring in but it was kind of put to bed pretty quickly the export controls remain in place of course but this article 16 triggering never actually came about it, it was put to bed quite quickly are these laws now in place? Are pharmaceutical companies who produce vaccines in the EU subject to them? Yeah, they were adopted last week. Um, they are in place, I believe, until March. Uh, and of course, they've been met with heavy criticism. I mean, we have a former European commissioner, President uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, uh, who came out earlier this week. Uh, he he uh, slammed the decision. Um, he, he's very much pointing towards the spectre of kind of vaccine nationalism, that the EU is trying to kind of keep this within its own borders when this is uh, really a, a global problem. And I think one way of looking at the export controls is this is a way of trying to get or trying to ensure that the vaccine companies meet their contractual obligations. Th th there's no clear sense 
that exports from the EU are actually causing these issues with the, the rollout, the slowing down of the rollout across the block. There's no sense that that is the fundamental issue. But really what this is, is a kind of a reactive measure to try and claw back the doses that are going to be missed and also to try and make sure that other companies don't feel uh, that they can shirk their obligation. So really is it is quite a reactive move. Uh, and I think it's a move as well that doesn't sit well with a lot of people uh, in the context of a, what is a global pandemic. Um, we're talking about 100 countries uh, here, mostly rich countries, admittedly, but 100 countries nonetheless, um, uh, to, uh, uh, upon which these export restrictions apply. The criticism from Juncker there, Michelle, is very similar to what we've been hearing from the World Health Organization, who are very, very, very clear that we need to take a global and not nationalistic approach to vaccine rollout. What have its members been saying? Well, this is something that the Director General of the WHO, Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, has been trying to highlight for a while now. He recently criticised what he described as the me first attitude of wealthy countries hogging COVID-19 vaccine doses while developing countries suffer. And he's been very strong on this. I mean, he said, aside from the obvious moral failure uh, of leaving some of the most vulnerable people in the world at risk, it's also a short sighted strategy that will ultimately prolong the global pandemic. I mean, just to to give, I suppose, some figures on this, Oxfam has said that nearly 70 poor countries will only be able to vaccinate one in 10 people against COVID-19 this year unless urgent action is taken to ensure that not only enough doses are produced, but that what is produced is shared around. Five of those countries, that's Kenya, Myanmar, Nigeria, Pakistan and Ukraine, have reported nearly 1.5 million cases between them. Uh, And Oxfam pointed out that wealthier countries have uh, bought enough doses to vaccinate their entire populations nearly three times over by the end of 2021. And that would be based on um, sort of all of the ones that we're expecting to be approved, being approved by the end of the year. But that's still, you know, a lot of vaccine doses that have been bought up by wealthy countries. Now, it has been recognised that uh, AstraZeneca in particular uh, has pledged to supply um, quite a high percentage, 64% of its doses to people in developing nations. But it's only going to reach 18% of the world's population this year. And with these recent supply issues, with the pressure from wealthy countries, and particularly the entire European bloc now, there's likely to be some kind of a knock-on impact. The EU has said that it wouldn't use this new mechanism to block uh, the export of vaccines for humanitarian reasons. So, you know, it's saying it's not going to block the export to developing countries. But it is still expecting the company to deliver a high volume to its member states. Developing countries are not going to be the top priority for the European Commission. I mean, I think it was interesting uh, to hear Minister for Foreign Affairs Simon Coveney when he spoke about the AstraZeneca supply issue, acknowledging that this looks bad, that those are his words, this looks bad from outside of the developed world. He said it was unfortunate that developing countries are now looking at wealthy parts of the world, arguing over who gets the vaccine first and supply chains, while they're desperately trying to get access to really small quantities of of the vaccine to even start vaccinating their own populations. Just to provide that contrast, Michelle, how many vaccine doses are we due to get in Ireland in Q1? And then if we know about what's due to happen in Q2? So if we look at the EU-wide picture first, the European Union was supposed to get, depending on how you read the contracts, as Ian was saying earlier, between 80 and 100 million doses of the vaccine in the first quarter of this year. Now, the EU was then told that would be reduced to the much smaller number of 31 million in the first quarter. 
After those tense negotiations that we've been talking about between the commission and the company, it was announced that an additional 9 million doses will be delivered in the first quarter and deliveries will start a week earlier than scheduled. But the commission has said the total will be 40 million and that's still at least half of the expected doses for the first quarter. Now, Ireland's share of that should be 400,000 vaccine doses. Um, And Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly has said Ireland will get 35,000 doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine next week and then and three installments of the vaccine are due to be delivered in the first quarter. Now, if we are to get all of those 400,000 doses, you'd expect the other deliveries after that up until the end of March to be substantially bigger than that first 35,000 doses coming next week. And remember, we're still getting doses of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine so, I mean, if we are getting such large deliveries going forward, there is a lot of work for the health service to do over this two week period to ensure that things don't back up and that we're actually getting through those vaccines as they come in. As for the second quarter of the year, uh, we're expecting things to improve, uh, hoping, I should say, uh, rather than expecting even uh, things to improve. Um, AstraZeneca had originally agreed to deliver more than 80 million doses in Q2, but it's not exactly clear how much of that they'll they'll actually be able to deliver. I mean, this is still going to depend on sorting out the current supply issues that it's having. Now, according to a new European delivery schedule, Ireland could receive around 4.47 million doses of vaccines. Now, that would be all vaccines, not just the AstraZeneca one, uh, in total by the end of June. That would be our share of the total pool of vaccines in the EU. So that's our best case scenario, I suppose. If all of the manufacturers deliver uh, what they've com- committed to, if our rollout is well-resourced and well-managed, and also if we don't have another surge in cases in the meantime that interferes with that rollout. So I'd imagine we'll have both of you back in to the explainer sometime soon to to kind of expand on some of these thoughts. But we got through a lot there uh, for this episode. So thanks so much, Ina, Michelle. And if anyone hasn't seen what the WHO have been seeing, saying, it is worth having a look on YouTube for those clips from our own Mike Ryan as well, who talks about um, the global nature of this vaccine rollout and how some healthcare workers in developing countries haven't got them um, and won't have them by the time that we have vaccinated our entire populations. And from that soapbox, I will end the explainer. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Ian and Michelle for their work on this episode. If you enjoyed this chat and learned something, we have loads more for you. Check out our back catalogue where you'll find other shows on the coronavirus, on Brexit, as well as the Kinnahan's connection to boxing, which has been back in the news this week. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Aoife Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you're enjoying the episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen. And importantly, share it with a friend who you think will enjoy them. Thank you and catch you next time.